I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians 4, Ephesians chapter 4. And we've got some Bibles, the guys do, they're going to make their way to the back. If you need a Bible so you can follow along, please get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you, marked at Ephesians 4. You can keep that Bible as well as our gift to you. We want everybody to have a copy of God's Word. Ephesians 4. Some roles and experiences have particular clothing that's appropriate to them. Doctors in a hospital might wear a white lab coat. Nurses wear scrubs. Police officers wear a uniform. Some companies give their employees shirts with the company's logo on them to wear while they're on the job. In some schools, there are uniforms that are worn by the students. And all of these are worn when the individual is in their role as doctor or nurse, police officer or employee or student. But when not at work or school, generally those clothes are exchanged for more pedestrian attire, and they're not worn again until back at work or school. Now, these are all good and honorable professions and activities, but there are other instances in which what you wear identifies you with the dishonorable and the despised. A Ku Klux Klan member wears his infamous robes to identify him as part of a white supremacist group. Nazi SS officers had uniforms with swastikas on them. Gang members wear clothing and accessories that associate them with one another and distinguish them from rival gangs. Prostitutes dress in a way to advertise to potential customers. But when, Lord willing, that KKK member comes to his senses and realizes the error of his way, he will burn those robes, never wanting to see them again. Same for the former SS officer or gang member or prostitute. All have been involved in dishonorable activities, and they want to put away whatever associates them with those activities. The Bible uses the metaphor of clothing to describe what all of us are naturally like. It's not the literal clothes that we wear, but the attitudes and the behavior that associate us with what we were before coming to Christ. And that's why verse 22 of Ephesians 4 says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Put off the old self and put on the new self, we're told. And those terms, put off and put on, are terms used for removing and wearing clothing. Christians are to be increasingly discarding the outward evidence of the old life and our thoughts and our words and our actions... And day by day, put on new virtues and character qualities that are consistent with the new life that we have in Christ. In verses 25 of chapter 4, all the way through to the end, and even into chapter 5 and verse 4, from chapter 4 and verse 25 to chapter 5 and verse 4, we're given six examples that cover areas of behavior that should look different for the Christian. 
And so I've titled this mini-series that we're going through in Ephesians 4, How to Show Your Faith. And these individual messages, as you see at the top of the outline that's inserted in your program, if you don't have that out yet, I encourage you to pull that out. And at the top, you see the title is Dress for Success. Successful Christian living requires thinking and talking and acting in ways that are consistent with the new person that we are in Jesus, the new you. Last week we saw that the Christian is replacing the clothing of falsehood so that, as we say in the outline, the new you wears truth. And that's based on what we saw last week in verse 25. Each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor. For we are all members of one body. And today in verses 26 and 27, we're going to see another area of our lives that's to have a distinctively Christian look. And let's ask God to help us then as we look at his word together. Father, we pause in this sacred moment to calm our hearts, to focus our minds, to leave aside the hustle and bustle and the cares of the world, the difficulty that some of us may have experienced in just getting here today, Lord, we ask you to help us to then focus upon now your word and your truth and grant us open hearts to align ourselves with the standard that your word gives us regarding your character. We pray this and ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Last week we saw from verse 25, the new you wears truth, as we say at the top of your outline. But today, secondly, from verses 26 and 27, the new you wears peace. The new you wears truth, but the new you also wears peace. Verse 26, in your anger do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Now, last week we saw that each of these six examples of the difference between the old you and the new you has three elements to it. All six of them are relational and positive and reasonable. Relational and positive and reasonable. Now, I'll briefly explain that or remind you of what we said last week regarding those three things. All six of these examples are relational in that each of them is demonstrated in our interactions with other people in how we relate to others. Whether we are provocative or whether we are peacemakers is obviously a relational issue. These are relational, but they are also positive examples because they not only tell us what not to do, they not only tell us what to put off, but they also tell us what to do, what we're to put on. In verse 25, we saw that we're to put off falsehood and put on truth. Today's passage in verses 26 and 27 tell us what not to do, but also what to do. We're not to sin. We're not to let the sun go down while we're angry. We're not to give the devil a foothold in our lives. Now we're going to see what those mean in a bit, but we're also told what to do in this passage. Because the phrase at the beginning of verse 26, in your anger do not sin, is in the original language in which this was written, Greek, a command to be angry. Now, it may sound strange for the Bible to tell us to be angry, since the Bible says so much that's negative about anger, even in these verses that we're going to consider. 
but we're going to see that there is indeed a time to be angry. So these six examples are relational, and they tell us what we're to do, not just what we're not to do. They're positive, and they're also reasonable. That is, for each of them, a reason is either stated or implied for each of the, each of the examples. The reason to be angry and yet not sin in our anger is implied in verse 27. Because failure to do this will, verse 27, give the devil a foothold in our lives. Now I want to take a few minutes to explain what's in these two verses. And then I want to use the majority of our time to make application of them. When verse 26 says, in your anger do not sin... It implies that it's possible to be angry without sinning. Otherwise, if all anger were sinful, it would make no sense to say, in your anger, do not sin. Instead, it would say something like, if you're angry, you're sinning, or some such. But phrasing it this way suggests that all anger is not sinful. And we know that for a number of reasons. One, God himself, the Bible says, is angry. In fact, if you just look at the next chapter, chapter 5 and verse 6, chapter 5 and verse 6 speaks of God's anger and says, because of such things, God's wrath comes. And Jesus, God the Son, when God came to earth, was also angry. The Bible tells us in Mark chapter 3, he, Jesus, looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. The psalmist speaks to the Lord of his, the psalmist's, own anger. Psalm 119, burning indignation has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. The theologian B.B. Warfield said, it would be impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of wrong, and to be indifferent and unmoved. Now, there's a lesson in that for us. If we are becoming like God, the ultimate moral being, the ultimate standard of our attitudes, thoughts, behavior, if we are becoming increasingly like God, as verse 24 says in Ephesians 4, in true righteousness and holiness, then that means that we are increasingly going to have a reaction to the sin and unrighteousness around us. And it's impossible to be otherwise. God is moved by that, and those who are becoming like God should be moved like that. So friends, if we find ourselves being on easy terms with the world, that should alarm us. There should be an increasing vexing of the soul. For the Christian in righteous indignation regarding what we see happening around us. So John Stott said this. There's a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant, angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, his people should hate it too. If evil arouses his anger, it should arouse ours also. Hot indignation seizes me because of the wicked who forsake thy law, as we saw the psalmist saying. What other reaction can wickedness be expected to provoke in those who love God? 
We must not compromise with sin in our own lives or the sin that is around us because, friends, God never does. This requirement for the righteous to be righteously indignant at sin explains some of the psalms of the 150 psalms in the book of your Bible by that name that are called the imprecatory psalms. Some of you have heard that term, but these are psalms that are prayers of imprecation. Now, what is an an imprecation? It's a statement of a, a negative desire. Imprecatory psalms are actual prayers that bad things will happen to certain people. You go, wow, how great is that? I can pray that. We've got to bear in mind that it's not first and foremost the psalmist. It's not first and foremost the one who's praying for these bad things to happen. It's not that individual who's been wronged and then is seeking revenge. Instead, it's God and his reputation that are at stake and are being defended in those psalms. But even though there is such a thing then as proper anger, righteous anger, we all have to remember our tendency to sin and to therefore censor our anger as we are prone to it. That's why even though there is the positive command to be angry, there are three things that we're told in these verses to avoid. Do not sin in your anger. And that requires making sure we're free from responding in anger because of injured pride or spite or malice or animosity and with a spirit of revenge. So James chapter 1 says, Be slow to become angry. For man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. And verse 26, again, In your anger do not sin, do not not let the sun go down while you're still angry. Now, I want you to notice that the first part of that verse, in your anger, do not sin. Take a look at that. Look at it in your Bible. Everybody got a Bible? You should. We were giving them out a little bit ago. We got it marked for you there. Take a look at it. And you see that that phrase is in quotation marks. Now, it's a a quote from the first part of your Bible and the, the book of Psalms. And in particular, Psalm number four that says this, in your anger, do not sin. When you, are on, when you are on your beds, search your hearts. Now it says, in your anger do not sin, do not, we will see, go uh, to bed while you're still angry. And it's quoting that from Psalm number 4, which is a nighttime psalm. That is, it's a psalm with things that you're to do before you go to bed. And one of them is to handle any personal issues that have arisen during the day. So rather than letting things fester and thereby become worse between you and another person, handle it that day, before the sun goes down, before you go to bed at night. Now that is of great practical value in all relationships and perhaps especially in our homes (laughs) where life is lived. You see, life is not lived on the Lord's day in this room. This is fake life. I mean, really, it's so easy for it to be fake life, isn't it? And you've got your face on and I've got my face on. But there's the face you had on the way here. And there's the face we had yesterday in interaction with our children, in interaction with with our spouses. And this advice, to not 
go to bed while you are still angry. It's a great practical value in, in our homes. Get things right and get them settled soon, sooner, not later. Now, I'm told that if you live in Greenland, day can last a quarter of a year. And so you have plenty of time to nurse your anger if you want to. If you're that serious about it, you can move to Greenland. The word at the end of verse 26, you know, you've got at the beginning of verse 26, in your anger, do not sin. And then at the end of verse 26, do not go to bed while you are still angry. Anger and angry. Two different English words because they are two different, they are two different Greek words. And that, that second one, angry, could be translated resentful. So don't go to bed while you've still got this, this developing bitterness that's happening because of some incident between you and, and someone else. And then we're told this third thing that we're to avoid, don't give the devil a foothold. Because the devil would like nothing more than to use your anger. Now, let's be clear. It's your anger. It's not the devil's anger. (laughs) We're going to see he's got anger, but he's going to use your anger. But he would love nothing more than to use that in order to create a, a foothold in your life that moves you away from God and away from bringing glory to him by emulating him. And ultimately, Satan would like to see these matters not settled, to fester, to become embittered, so that they go to the nth degree in our anger. John 8, Jesus said this, The devil was a murderer from the beginning. That's how he wants you to be, if not in action, at least in attitude. Now, I'd like to make some application of this issue then of anger and settling our our accounts and what anger is according to the Bible. And I want to acknowledge my indebtedness to David Paulison, some of you know that name. He's the editor of something called the Journal of Biblical Counseling. He has a three-part series in that journal on anger that I found to be very helpful and from which some of what I'm going to say comes. First, I want you to consider this, that the Bible is about anger. Just some facts about anger, and then we will fill in what you have remaining in your outline. But the Bible itself is about anger. In fact, it would not be too much to say that God himself is the most angry person in the Bible. In fact, you can't understand God's love if you don't understand his anger. Now hear this. Because God loves, he is angry at what harms. Because he loves us, he is angry at what harms us, whether that potential harm is being done by us or done by someone to us. So in love, God's anger meted out the penalty of sin and His wrath was borne by God the Son on the cross. In love, God's anger is rooting out the power of sin via the Holy Spirit and God's Word in us today. In love, God's anger will remove the presence of sin. But for now, the agents of evil are used by God for his good purpose. Even in our suffering, he transforms us into the image of Christ. This issue of anger is so important to God. And and the Bible being about anger is so pervasive that in 1 Corinthians 13, many of us know 1 Corinthians 13 as the love chapter. It's all about love. 
But every element in the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13 is the opposite of anger. The most angry person in the Bible is God. You could actually say the most angry person in the Bible is Satan as well. He has unrelenting anger, but he has unrelenting anger because he hates all that God is doing and accomplishing and will accomplish in his world through his love and through this anger that motivates him. The devil is, according to the book of Revelation, filled with fury. So anger can be righteous, but obviously it can be utterly wrong as well. So the Bible is about anger. But here's a second fact about anger. Anger is something that you do. Anger is something that you do. Now, it's important for us to understand this because many of us think anger is just something I have. (laughs) And, you know, we've got all kinds of medical terms that we adopt for behavior today. And I just have it. I was diagnosed with and put the label on it. I just have it. How did I get it? Why do I behave the way I do? And if we're not careful, if we're not careful, we'll do that with things like anger. I've got anger, but anger is something that indeed arises from within you, but it's something that you do with every part of who you are, your body, physically. And so when we think of anger or experience anger, there's the flushed face. There's the adrenaline surge. There are the clenched muscles in our faces, the churning stomach, the nervous tension. Most of the words in Scripture that are used for anger communicate through vivid and bodily metaphors because of this. It's no accident that many of the idioms that we use for anger work off of the physiological effects when we are angry. We say things like, he was hot under the collar. I was really steamed. She was breathing fire. Anger is volcanic. He was seeing red, hot-blooded, engaged in a slow burn. This anger and the fact that anger is unmistakably physiological lends plausibility to the medical theories that view it as basically all physiological and something, therefore, to be soothed with medications. Now, it is true that our hormones, our blood flow, our muscles... Our grimaces, they all register anger. But that's not, friends, all there is to it. The whole person does anger. It involves our thoughts. We have the internal video camera that plays the clips over and over again of the perceived wrong. Or we may rehearse imaginary scenarios about what we're going to do to that person or what should happen to that person. It involves our thoughts, but it also involves our behavior. Behavior ranging from couples who finally allow their anger to overflow and have a gunfight. I'm not making that up. Nobody nobody in here yet. Or ranging from that to the person who just buries their, their nose in a magazine and ignores their spouse because of their anger. And all of this anger in our thoughts and in our behavior that involves the whole person, all of it's targeted 
at someone. And ultimately at someone with a capital S. That someone being God. Do you understand that, friends? When you're angry at your circumstances, you are angry at the God of your circumstances. And how do we know that we as sinners are ultimately angry at God? Here's how. When God came here, when God visited this earth, we killed him. So anger is all of these things. It's physical, it's emotional, it's mental, it is behavioral. It is all of you. It's something you do. Here's another fact about anger. Anger is natural. It's natural. That is, we were created naturally with the capacity to be angry. Adam and Eve, before they sinned, should have been angry at the serpent. That should have been the reaction. They should have tossed the, tossed the serpent out of the garden. In anger, refused to go along with his subtle temptations. But now, after the entrance of sin in God's world, it's natural to sin in our anger. And so now, we have this capacity for anger that we were given for good purposes, but we use it for distorted purposes. We are angry at the wrong persons and at the wrong things. Consider. Does your child, parents, have to be taught to be angry? Your child is naturally angry when he or she does not get what he or she wants. Well, they got that from, forgive the language, their old man and their old lady. They got that from their dad and their mom. It comes to them naturally and sinfully natural now. Which brings me to a fifth fact about Anger, excuse me, a fourth fact about anger. Anger is learned. Just as there is creation nature, that is what we were created to be and be like, and anger and the capacity to anger was part of that, there is sin nature, and there is also sin nurture, and there's grace nurture. So you've got creation nature and sin nature. There's sin nurture and grace nurture. And again, parents, our desire should be to nurture our children in an environment where what they learn about anger is that anger is directed at the right time in the right way for the right reasons. But anger is indeed taught and modeled before us. We learn as we watch and observe others, particularly our parents, what to be angry about and how to show our displeasure. And that's why the Bible says in Proverbs, do not make friends with a hot-tempered man. Do not associate with one easily angered. Why? Because you'll learn to do that. So we learn a style of anger. You may have observed a kind of tight-lipped civility that is seething. And that's what you do. Or you may have observed a kind of bombastic expression of anger and so that's what you do and many of you have had the experience of going through those kinds of episodes and thinking to yourself i've said for years i would not become like my mother and i become exactly like my mother or my father anger is as well a moral matter 
Anger is a moral matter. As a moral matter, it evaluates what it perceives to be right and wrong, moral and immoral. It evaluates and it is evaluated. Anger evaluates and is evaluated. It evaluates by weighing something or someone, finding it or them lacking, wrong, or displeasing, and then it moves into action. So the things that we typically think of as anger, a raised voice, accusatory words, emotional heat, hostile attitude, it's probably best defined as the emotionally aroused form of judgment against perceived evil. I'll say that again. When you see all of those expressions of anger, what they really are, are the emotionally aroused form of judgment against perceived evil. That is, it's my reaction, your reaction, against what I perceive to be wrong, perceived to be evil. Emotionally charged, most often in sinful anger. Anger evaluates evaluates what it thinks is right or wrong and then responds, but it's also evaluated, evaluated by God. And the evaluation criteria are, am I angry at the right things? And if so, am I angry in the right way? If I become upset when the phone rings and it breaks my concentration and I mutter a string of expletives, my anger is saying, this phone call is bad and it deserves to be damned. And God evaluates both my criterion for that judgment and my way of reacting, and He finds both of them to be wrong. If I curse out an adulterer and I gossip about him, my anger says adultery is wrong and it should be met with cursing and gossip. In that case, God also evaluates, and He evaluates my criterion for judgment, and He finds it right. Indeed, adultery is wrong. But He evaluates my way of reacting, and He finds it wrong. Here's another scenario. If I become angry when my child mocks his mother, and I respond to him with vigorous, loving reproof, my anger says this, disrespect is wrong, and it should be met energetically with respect, challenge, and mercy. And God evaluates that situation, both the criteria for judgment and the way of reacting, and he finds both of them to be right in that instance. Such anger expresses love for both the wife and the child. And the emotional force of that kind of loving anger does a number of good things. It motivates you to intervene. It protects the wife. It drives home to the child the significance of the wrong. It models the right way to respond to another's sin. But our culture says not that anger is moral and it needs to be evaluated and that it responds to its evaluation of persons and things. Our culture says not that it's moral, but rather it's neutral. Anger is neither good nor bad. It just is. It's an emotion. You can't control your emotions. Your emotions just are, says the culture. And God says otherwise. God and Satan, then, are both angry all the time. So here's the question for us. On whose side is your anger? 
Is your anger on God's side or on Satan's side? And how do you evaluate that? How do you test that? And that's what I have for you in your outline. Some tests regarding our anger. Here's the first. Ask yourself, what do you get angry about? What do you get angry about? Remember, anger addresses perceived wrong. Did you perceive it correctly? Now, if you are someone who is a self-centered narcissist, I think that's an oxymoron. I think all narcissists are self-centered. But if you are that, and the world revolves around you in your mind, then you will perceive slights and wrongs all of the time. Because no one can ever measure up to your standard. Anger addresses perceived wrong. And you have to ask, did you perceive rightly? That's the first great divide. A person may become angry at things that he has no business being angry about. People generate their own expectations, their own sort of laws, their own criteria of what's good and bad, and they react angrily when these laws of theirs are broken. Jonah in the Old Testament is a classic example. Twice in the four chapters of Jonah, the Bible tells us he burned with anger, and twice God challenged him, saying, do you have good reason to be angry, Jonah? Notice, do you have good reason to be angry? He had perceived God's compassion had Jonah on people and the withering of the shade that he had had from the sun. And he perceived those as serious wrongs against him. And much sinful anger arises from similar kinds of misperceptions. So, for example, and here's just a mundane where you live kind of example. I may expect roast beef for dinner. Maybe it's had my heart set on roast beef. Maybe I was told we were having roast beef. And then when I sit down to dinner, macaroni and cheese is served. Now, if I grouse irritably, is angry, anger neutral there? No, in fact, it's sinful because I've perceived as bad something that is good and that God pronounces as good. Here is food for you. God says it's good. I perceived as bad something that in fact is good and is meant to be received with thanks. Much anger arises from perceptions that are distorted by beliefs and cravings and expectations that substitute for God's rule in our hearts. Another word for that is they become idolatrous to us. I mean, friends, is it morally wrong for things to turn out different than you wanted? And the obvious answer is, of course, no. Perception may be wrong, and it may be mistaken as well. It may just be based on mistaking the facts of the matter. David Pollison uses the illustration of having walked out of an auditorium, walked out into a hallway, and didn't even recognize that he had passed a woman that he knows. He didn't acknowledge her, and she, for eight months, was angry. Eight months before she finally came and told him she was angry about this perceived snub. 
Turns out that Paulison had left the room because he was experiencing nausea. And he was focused on how he was physically feeling and didn't notice the woman at all. So she mistakenly perceived what she saw. But of course, we are all experts, aren't we? I know what I saw. Well, sometimes you don't know what you saw. And this woman's desire for acceptance had ruled her heart. Her craving for acceptance had conflicted with the desires of the Spirit in her. Now, it might be that your anger is justified. You may very well be angry at something that you should hate. You may accurately perceive a wrong and then respond to it. That wrong might be against you because of, say, harshness from your spouse or parent, because of disrespect from a child, because of lying by an employee, fraud by a salesman, rape by a relative. You may observe evil done publicly or to another per, another individual. So it's not against you, but against someone else. Child molestation, verbal cruelty, homosexual and abortionist propaganda, lies and manipulation by a televangelist should make us angry. Wartime atrocities. And in those instances, all of them, anger is the appropriate Christian response. You would be a stone, you would be a sentimentalist, or you would be a stoic if you didn't feel some degree of anger. But then at this point, we face another issue, and I have that in your outline. There's not just what are you angry about, there's how do you express your anger. How do you express your anger? In your response, are you seeking to condemn or are you offering help? If you're looking first to condemn, you're assuming the role that belongs to God. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And you're failing to deal with the log in your own eye as you work on the speck in somebody else's. The Bible reserves justice to be meted out in mass on the and society, reserves that for, for government. The sword of judgment is reserved for government and for a good reason. The larger the issue, the less individual anger should play a part. Vigilante justice results and then injustice follows and God is God is displeased. So how do you express your anger? You express your anger at the ballot box, you express your anger in peaceful protest. Assuming your anger is appropriate, Ask yourself, am I addressing, expressing it constructively to the glory of God? Or is it full of self-righteousness and the sinful desire to punish, to be punitive? Just on the mundane level, how are you responding and expressing your anger toward a sullen teenager in your house? Toward your husband who might brood? A co-worker who just talks too much. A committee at work that's just veering off in a fruitless direction. Should I be angry? And if I'm angry and they need my help, how am I going to express that anger? How will I love? Will I return evil for evil or will my words be constructive? Whether forceful or mild, will my words give grace to those who hear? Here's a third test of our anger. How long does your anger last? 
And these are tests as to whether or not my anger is godly anger, righteous anger, or sinful anger. How long does it last? We let it fester and we become like those who have wronged us. And when that happens, the devil wins. You remember, friends, when Jesus gave the model prayer, the disciples' prayer? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And then he goes on to say, and deliver us from the evil one. But then down in verses 14 and 15 of Matthew chapter 6, where that prayer is given, Jesus goes on to express and explain that fifth of the six petitions that he gives in that prayer, the one about forgiveness. And he says, if you will not forgive others, your father will not forgive you. So how long does your your anger last? And an unforgiving attitude is evidence of an unregenerate heart. So do you get over your anger or does it fester? Do your attitudes toward people become poisoned with malice, with disdain, with condemnation? Where you keep short accounts, friends, on your own sins, including the many manifestations of anger, mercy will continually flow into your own life, making you a merciful person to others. Here's another test of anger. How controlled is your anger? How controlled is your anger? Godly anger is emotion that's controlled by a purpose that's imposed on us by God. It's consistent with those fruits of the Spirit like self-control, like gentleness, like patience. Ungodly anger is emotion controlled by the impulses of our own hearts. And it runs out of control. It's harsh. It's easily provoked. Counselor J. Adams put it well. He said, anger is the emotion that's been given by God to attack problems. The energies of anger must be productively released under control toward a problem. Anger must be directed toward destroying the problem, not toward destroying the person. Anger, like a good horse, must be bridled. Is your anger controlled by a godly agenda, by confidence in God's sovereignty, by submission to His purposes? Or is it ignoring God's control? Is it unpredictable, vigilante, abusive, or brooding? Is your anger grace-giving, or is it judgmental? God's purposes through us are for us to give grace. Is your anger laced with mercy? The truth is, friends, we have all been and will be provoked. When your child mocks or defies you as a parent, you don't simply observe that in a detached way, and you were not made to observe that in a detached way. You don't say, oh, that's interesting. I believe what I'm hearing and seeing is something that perhaps perhaps fits the category of sin. Why, yes, indeed, as I think about it, that pattern of words that my child just spoke seems inconsistent with obedient respect. Hmm, I wonder how I should handle it. No, you were made to react emotionally to that. A child is not supposed to mock his parents. The offense rightly pushes a button and arouses something in you. But that anger easily becomes sinful, but it doesn't have to. It can be bridled. Let's deal with this. And the anger provides energy to name clearly what 
was wrong to discipline the child, to talk with him, comfort him, and give love to him. But anger is sinful and destructive if it's punitive, but it's righteous and loving if it's disciplinary to train the child to help him or her grow. Now, does such self-control mean that your anger will not be intense? Lack of intensity can indicate a lack of care. Think about, just for the moment, a kid, a child who coolly and in a detached way kills. A genocidal dictator who has no emotion. A convicted child murderer who shows no emotion. But it's fair to say that much of the intensity of anger will be greatly diminished when that anger is controlled by the Spirit. Because so much of our sinful anger is reckless and vengeful and misguided. Merciful and patient and wise people don't explode. But the book of Proverbs says that fools give full vent to their anger. The wise maintain a humble self-suspicion about the validity of their own anger. And they're always asking themselves, does this pass God's tests? And similarly, many occasions of anger will disappear because we won't be aroused by the many things that trigger irritable anger for us. But having said all of that, there will always be some occasions for anger and some of those will indeed call for strong, intense feelings. Here's another test. What motivates your anger? What motivates your anger? Anger arises from motive. People motivated for God's glory, motivated by conformity to Jesus and the well-being of other people will be angry one way. People motivated by selfish desires and pride and false beliefs are going to be angry another way. So ask yourself, what do I really want? Be willing to seek counsel from godly people who can help you evaluate your motives. So here's an example. If you've if you asked a reasonable question of someone and that question was derided as stupid or someone called you a nasty name because you asked this supposedly stupid question, you would feel pain and shock and humiliation and anger. And that's all as it should be. What are you going to do with that? Will it motivate you to confront, frankly, with a general, gentle spirit? To help with the problem and help the individual see straight and to move that person to forgiveness from God and from, from you? Or will you grow bitter and brood and scheme? You may be tempted by the wrong response, but then move toward the right one. And that's really what this message is about. Many of you have been tempted by the wrong response to things that go on in your lives. And here we're trying to persuade you to the right one. Ask yourself this next test as well. How constant is your anger? How constant? Repeated arguments where you have the verbal volleys that follow the same scripted pattern time after time reveal something is wrong with your anger. Did you know that? And this fits many of you. It's the same thing. It's the same stuff that comes out of your mouth. When issues, on the other hand, get dealt with daily, my anger isn't just waiting to happen. I'm not primed to react. A wrong done today does not lead me to drag out your criminal record of former transgressions. 
And so I won't say, how many times have I told you? If I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times. You always. You never. Here we go again. I can't believe you did it again. Don't raise your hand, but does that sound familiar to anybody? Godly anger is part of grace and of peacemaking. Grace breaks the cycle of provocation and reaction that's so characteristic of life in our sinful world. And sins, including sinful anger, are usually repetitive. But hear this, godly anger starts fresh because it keeps no record of wrongs. It keeps looking for how God is at work in the other person and in the situation just as he's at work in me. And then lastly, a last test. What is the effect of your anger? A final way to distinguish righteous from sinful anger is by its effects. Sinful anger creates more problems. It complicates matters. It hurts people. It puts them on the defensive. The way you come across tempts them to duck or retaliate. Now hear this. People may still duck or retaliate when they're faced with just and accurate and merciful words that are in godly anger. But you aren't the occasion of the stumbling. They're tempted simply by the sinfulness of their own hearts. Gracious words are sweet to the taste. Even when they contain tough truths, they breathe helpful intent. Godly anger is part of solving problems, generally speaking. Not always, generally speaking. Righteous anger creates gracious circles of relationship. Godly anger does not have to win. It does not have to succeed in bringing wrongdoers to justice. Its purposes are much more modest on the surface, but they're much deeper under the surface. Its purposes are the glory of God and the eternal well-being of God's people. Now, friends, this issue of anger gets right down into our hearts and it expresses itself in the myriad of ways that have gone through here. But the key issue, as always, is what's happening in the heart. What's motivating me? What desires do I have? What is it that I want? I'm going to end by reminding you of the making of an idol that I've told you about a number of times over the years. And the making of an idol goes this way. It starts with, I want. And it moves from, I want, to, I need. And then it goes from I need to I must. But it all starts with my desires. I desire this. I want this. Whatever the, this is, and the, and the thing may be a good thing, but I want it. And I want it so bad that you better supply it. Now notice, the pronouns there are all I at that point. And then they move to, and here's the crucial point in our relationships, what you should do. You should. I want it. You should. But the problem is you didn't. And because you didn't, you'll pay. And many relationships, undoubtedly, in this room involve people who are seeking to pay back others who didn't do what we wanted. And so our desires, then, have morphed into demands. I desire something, and it may be good, but it's morphed into a demand, and you didn't meet my demand, and therefore it's only right that you pay for not meeting my demand, we think. 
We allow that to happen. Our anger becomes resentment, becomes bitterness. At some point, it will explode in some way. Depending on your personality, that may be bombast. It may be leaving the home. It may be just checking out emotionally, even though you're physically there. Here's the good news for you, and we'll be done. The good news is that God has already raged against sin. God has already raged against your sin and the sin that's committed against you. God has already raged His anger against sin. And He's done that in the person of God the Son, poured out on the cross. And friends, every day, every single day, we need to repair to the cross and remember that God's anger was poured out there. And that's one of the reasons God then says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. God has carried out His wrath on sin and He will continue to to judge as necessary. But He calls us to look at our own sin and to cast our own sin at the cross and allow God to take care of the rest. Now, I mentioned last week you didn't have a take-home truth. This week, you don't have the same take-home truth until we get to the end of this mini-series. We're going to pray in just a moment and end. But... Before we do, I need to make an announcement, and that is, I had mentioned earlier that in our second hour, we're going to have our young people being promoted on Promotion Sunday. Our children's ministry will be in here and leading this next hour. I encourage you all to stay for that and be in here. However, where you sit in here needs to be on this side, this side of the middle aisle. That side is all going to be taken by the young people and their teachers. So those of you that have stuff over there, when we go out for our refreshment time, you need to take it. You'll need to move it over here. We've calculated. We're pretty sure there'll be space for you over here. And if not, it'll be a standing room only only crowd. All right? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for meeting with us. We thank you for giving us your word and allowing us to look into it. And to see there, Lord, the standard of your holy character. And then, Lord, to evaluate our own attitudes and words and actions, not in comparison to others, not certainly in comparison to ourselves as a standard, but using you as the standard. We thank you, Lord, for your word and the practicality of your word that tells us how to live out a godly life in a fallen world. Lord, we desire... If we are your people, we desire to please you. We desire to emulate your character and to bring, thereby bring glory to you. Lord, this matter of, of anger and of truth-telling and these characteristics of the new self are impossible for us to accomplish apart from your spirit, apart from your gracious aid. And so, Lord, we ask you to help us to root these truths into our hearts, these practical suggestions into our routines, so that this week and in the months and years ahead, we will be better equipped to show our faith to others. We pray this in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen.